What else did they find? A skeleton? No, about 30 tins of spam, as a matter of fact. Spam? And a letter to Father Christmas. Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a duel Just an old second hand Hello and welcome to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode... We're talking about the 1972 British TV horror film, The Stone Tape. Woohoo! Yes, a ghost story for Christmas. Perfect timing. Well, it would be perfect timing if this weren't going out the day after Christmas, but, yeah, forgive us. But before we get to all that good stuff, what is happening? Well, very recently, we sent out the Christmas cards to all our Patreon backers, so they should be winging their way through the ether to your doorstep very soon. Delivered by Bayaki. And all being well, there should be another little treat in that package for you. A copy of the Blasphemous Tome, Issue 3. And even if you're not a Patreon backer, then we'd like to take this opportunity to wish you season's greetings. Whatever it is you celebrate at this time of year, um, even if it's nothing, enjoy that. A very scary solstice to wall. So Matt, this will be your first Christmas in your new house. Yeah, it will be. So what, what have you got plans? No. <laughs> okay. No, well, do you I, think it'll just be you and Tiff? Uh, maybe. I, honestly, this this time of year just ends up being. Oh look, I've yet again for the tenth year running, not got enough annual leave left, so I'm going to be stuck in the office, being the only schmuck that's in my department doing ah, so. Ah, all the joys. Uh, you, you like come <laughs> Bob Cratchit? Pretty there, much. Yeah. With the rats. Uh, hopefully not with the rats. Not in our you, building. We you know the proper Christmas Carol version, right? With oh, the Muppets. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, it's scary enough. We still do have the occasional scratching sound that we hear at the new house because we haven't been able to put mouse traps down upstairs yet. In the walls, perhaps. Well, in the wall. I think between the floors as well. The rats um, in the floors. Yeah, I hear, hear them scurrying around at night, and it is pissing me off a bit because they keep keeping me awake. <laughs> wow. Now that is staggering. Something that keeps Matt awake. Uh, <laughs> Well, okay. only, to, only to a point eventually then it's a case of just exhaustion kicks in and then <sighs> what about you scott i mean it's, christmas is a busy time for you right it, it is yes You're delivering I, I, all those I, presents <laughs> around the world ho ho motherfucking ho <laughs> uh no i'm i'm afraid i'm going to be my usual grumpy self at christmas and and just withdraw from the world and sit there in the dark and and pretend that none of it is happening well okay we're really like bringing the christmas cheer to, to the world here <laughs> but but you're the festive one out of the three of us paul oh i'm all about the the festivities yeah yeah i'll be i guess i'll just be home as as a regular kind of christmas with the family probably have my mum round and you know turkey and the regular Christmas trimmings and so on. I do love your little plush turkey thing that you bring out. Oh, nothing as much as my mum loves it, though. <laughs> Every year she goes crazy. We got this, like, plush turkey that if you squeeze its wing, it walks around the floor singing a little uh, Merry Christmas song. I pick it up by the neck. That's the one that, that oh, I like, yeah. yeah. So, gobble, 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 gobble. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds dangerously like animal abuse. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's not, not a real turkey, Scott. Mm, keep Honestly. telling yourself that <laughs> it's got the spirit of one trapped within it <laughs> and i believe there's one more day left on your kickstarter matt oh, i say your kickstarter is your writing a part of it well, it's mainly from the team that brought us the props of the after um, and the sedef car simulacrum 
um, I'm just writing the scenario that goes along with this very very nice Cthulhu Idol. Um, it'll have various symbols on the bottom that are a little bit of a puzzle for the scenario, and a hidden microphone where you'll hear the weird and dementing sounds of the HBLHS um, that will accompany the scenario. And if you want to get a copy of Matt's sequel to The Call of Cthulhu story as a scenario, then you've got just over 24 hours to get yourself on Kickstarter and become a backer. And you'll find a link on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. Speaking of things that are going to wrap up soon, time is running out fast if you want to get the Blasphemous Tome issue 3. We have sent a whole load out to backers, but if you do join us on Patreon uh, before the end of the year, you will get a copy. I think you gave the uh, postmistress in Buckingham a D10 sand loss when you wheeled that lot in, didn't you? (laughs) It took a while. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Boxes and boxes and boxes of tomes. It took three of us to carry them to the post office. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) And speaking of Patreon, we have some good news. Uh, Last episode, we mentioned that uh, we had heard that Patreon were going to be changing their charging structure and that this was going to lead to backers actually having to pay more. Well, happily, this has caused such an outcry that Patreon have backed down on it. So you will not find yourself now paying $1.50 or $1.60 or whatever for your $1 pledge. You will just pay $1.00. Now that all this has been resolved, we will carry on using Patreon as as our main funding system. That said, we are looking at alternatives as well, and uh, if we find something that we can run in parallel for anyone who doesn't want to use Patreon, we'll introduce that in the near future. Also, some more good news that's come out very recently. Our good friend Lynn Hardy has been made an assistant editor over at Chaosium for Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, so she'll be working with Mike Mason on all these marvellous Call of Cthulhu books that are going to be coming out. Yeah, Paul and I worked very closely with Lynn on the Masks of Nialathotep project. And yeah, based on that, she is exactly the right person for the job. Uh, She basically kept us organised and did a lot of sterling editing work on the stuff that we produced there. So congratulations, Lynn. Well deserved. And one more bit of news from Chaosium. They have announced something they're calling the Miskatonic Repository. Yeah, this is where pretty much anyone can submit their own supplement for Call of Cthulhu, whether it be arms guides, equipment guides, scenarios, uh, scenarios, um, setting pieces, research documents, props, anything that you can physically think of getting down on paper. You can submit it to them and they'll make it available through DriveThruRPG. And profit share with you if, if you wish to charge for it. Yeah, indeed, yes. And I understand they're providing templates and resources to allow you to lay these things out. So the the end result should look fairly professional. Yeah, it, it's a trend that's been picked up by a few people, I can think now. Because uh, there's a D&D version, there's a World of Darkness one that's just gone live. And so this, this one as well. So yeah, it looks like it's becoming pretty popular out there. Well, it's Christmas. Well, technically, it's Boxing Day by the time this goes out. But damn it, it's Christmas. It's the it Christmas a, season. I thought it was a scary solstice. What the hell's this Christmas shit? <laughs> but I mean, whatever it is, whether it's Christmas Hanukkah, um, Saturnalia, or something altogether more eldritch, it is the time of giving. And we've been given a gift by uh, our good friend Adam Alexander. Yes, all the way from the United States, we have a parcel. It's uh, about the size of a house brick. Wrapped in white card with a Cthulhu sticker on one end. I'm passing it over to Matt so uh-huh. he can delve into it with I, some scissors. Be careful, I, Matt. I, I would say what's in the box. It doesn't feel heavy enough to be Gwyneth Paltrow's head, so we're all good on that front. 
Uh, might be one of her kidneys. Oh, uh, yeah, it could be. Yeah. Yeah. There's a skull on one end, so skull surrounded a, by a wreath. A picture of a skull, I'll just say for yeah. listeners. <laughs> right, I'm trying to find the best way to attack this as well. Ah, there we go, there's a... Scalpel! And it's... Ah, yeah, it's opening. It's opening. It's opening. Oh. And... <laughs> no idea what this is. Oh, we've got a envelope on top to Paul, Scott and Matt. Well, Paul's okay. first, he can have... All right. You know that bit? That looks very <laughs> Hessian. It is, there, is a, there is indeed a bag in... Uh, in fact, several, three Hessian bags inside uh, with... Oh, oh they are individually well, addressed as well. I've got one that has a tag so? with HPL dressed up as Santa Claus. Uh, naughty, nice, or a cosmic sca- on a cosmic scale, we're all doomed. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Oh, well, I like that. To Matt from Adam. Then Scott's one's next, which is... This was definitely not on your list. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. And Paul's one has a great big warning sign on it saying, do not shake, or, dis- or dis- it disturbs the shog off. Oh, I think I may have broken that rule already. I shook it to see if it rattled. <laughs> we also have a nice card, uh, oh, yeah. a Cthulhu-themed card, and Adam says, to the good friends of Jackson Elias, thank you for hours of entertainment and fun. And then he says... I even enjoy the singing. <laughs> oh, Adam. <laughs> I, I'm glad someone does. <laughs> I um, so, I, something wrong with your ears. <laughs> yes. They, 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 you are obviously made of stouter stuff than the rest of us. Well, oh, they, these bags look like strength. they should contain chicken bones and eldritch herbs and stuff like that. Uh, oh, <laughs> yes, I think I see what's inside. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, you're going to love these. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. oh, you little, you little uh, crochet oh, Cthulhu. Uh, I, this, this may be why my bag is not unwrapping. It's trying to spare me. Go on, look at the cutie. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's a little crochet Cthulhu about palm size. And, uh, yes, it's got wings and tentacles and eyes. They're, they're different colours as well. What they are. Is, is it kind of a turquoise? cerulean blue turquoisey colour? Yeah. I've got purple. I like oh, yeah. I, I've, I, Scott's still I'm, refusing. I've, I've, I've got a nozzle one time. Do you want the scissors? <laughs> I, I'd better. Hey, he's in oh, the bag. He, he, here he comes. Oh, and he's green. Yeah. Oh, he's green. <laughs> oh, that, that is a very cute little eldritch monstrosity. Goochie, goochie, goochie. It'll take pride of place on my shelf. Yeah, I think I might be tempted to uh, tie a little bit of string on it and suspend it from the mirror in my car. Oh, yeah. Mm. Well, uh, thank you very much, Adam. Yes, thank much you. Much appreciated. Indeed, thank yes. you. Hey. I, I shall now have to protect this from my cats. Queer <laughs> 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 And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word is... Haunted. It's an adjective, as well as being the title of a very good James Herbert book. One, frequented or visited by ghosts. Two, obsessed or worried. That's an interesting definition. Yeah, Mm. I mean, you can be sort of haunted by your own personal ghosts. You can be haunted by worries, concerns, anxieties. Have a haunted expression. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 
Once again, we've done a few of these recently. This is another word which has a definition that is pretty much at odds with a lot of Lovecraftian horror, in that it implies ghosts, it implies the supernatural. And Lovecraft's work is, with the exception of some of his early stuff, is largely free of that kind of concern. Why is this such a prolific word in his fiction? I think it probably comes down to that second definition, that obsessed or worried, because you do see a lot of his um, antagonists and protagonists as well that are quite obsessed by either research or following a particular line of investigation or just a particular theme in general. Yes, except, I mean, I, I would agree with you, and it, it would fit perfectly there. If it weren't for the fact that the way Lovecraft uses it, he tends to refer to places an awful lot as being haunted. It's like we were talking about in previous episodes with some of his use of religious terms. This is him applying perhaps a commonly used term from the, the fiction that he was steeped in to provide atmosphere, but it's not necessarily technically correct. Mm, but it's evocative, saying. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like you say, it builds atmosphere, the place is haunted. Okay, I don't know quite what that means, it's haunted. What's it haunted by? But it's haunted. And mm. I kind of get that. Used 58 times by Lovecraft in his main fiction. So, a fairly popular word. Yeah. And now we take a look at how Lovecraft used the word haunted in his writings. From the Moonbog. The Wide Plain the golden moonlight, the shadowy moving forms, and, above all, the shrill, monotonous piping produced an effect which almost paralysed me. Yet I noted amidst my fear that half of these tireless mechanical dancers were the labourers whom I had thought asleep, whilst the other half were strange, airy beings in white, half indeterminate in nature, but suggesting pale, wistful naiads from the haunted fountains of the bog. And from the unnameable. Those later spectral legends, I made plain, related to monstrous apparitions more frightful than anything organic could be. Apparitions of gigantic bestial forms, sometimes visible and sometimes only tangible, which floated about on moonless nights and haunted the old house, the crypt behind it, and the grave where a sapling had sprouted besides an illegible slab. And from the Whisperer in Darkness. That shriek and noises, still unbroken snore, are the last sounds I ever heard in that morbidity-choked farmhouse beneath the black-wooded crest of a haunted mountain. That focus of transcosmic horror amidst the lonely green hills and curse-muttering brooks of a spectral, rustic land. Can we just stop for a moment and appreciate the phrase curse-muttering brooks? I think that is just a beautifully poetic and utterly weird turn of phrase. Mm. I love it. I was going to say, is there any other type of brook? <laughs> uh, was Newport Packnell filled with curse-muttering brooks when you were a kid? Yeah, there was one that ran behind the back of my grandfather's house. Okay, and it muttered curses the whole time. Well, probably just me muttering against my grandfather, but that's a different <laughs> I'm just, just picturing this, this brook that you know, as you, every time you hear the water trickle, it's just going, fuck, shit, fuck, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> they must have been funny people. There was something about an exorcism once. And now moving on to our main topic, 
The Stone Tape. Well, this may not be one of the best-known films that we've discussed, but you guys have mentioned it quite a few times, but this was indeed the first time I'd seen it. So if you're not familiar with it, it's worth pointing out that it is freely available to watch on YouTube. But you can also get it on DVD fairly cheaply as well. Yes, the DVD that's come out, the current edition, it's a double-disc set mm. with a, another classic BBC horror film, Ghostwatch, which came out some 20 years after The Stone Tape. Like The Stone Tape, it's a ghost story, but Ghostwatch is very different. It's a mock documentary. It was done as, a, as a, almost as a prank written by Stephen Volk that sort of modelled itself on a ghost-hunting documentary that then goes horribly wrong. So if you like, you know, sort of weird television ghost stories, yes, pick up that double-disc set. I think you meant mockumentary, Scott. I did. <laughs> I, I did. And I should kick myself for missing the opportunity to use that word. Now, this is somewhat timely coming out as we are on Boxing Day because this was first broadcast as a ghost story for Christmas in 1972. Yes, the BBC commissioned legendary screenwriter Nigel Neal to write what was originally going to be an episode of uh, their horror TV series Dead of Night as a Christmas ghost story. But as the, the, the script expanded, they decided to do it as a standalone film. And Neil, he loved blending science fiction and horror and bringing scientific rationality to the paranormal. And this is probably the finest example of that mixture. I'm also really glad that they didn't do it as an episode of Dead of Night because I think only three episodes of that series exist now. So if they had put it as Dead of Night, we may have lost this forever. And it also would have been a lot shorter because those episodes were, I think, 45, 50 minutes long. And the stone tape is an hour and a half. It, it is feature length. Mm -hmm. We've mentioned Nigel Neal on the podcast before. If you listen back to, oh gosh, all the way back to episode five, you will hear me raving about uh, his TV series Beasts from the mid-70s and just what a profound influence it had on me as a young horror fan. You may even hear some really haunting sounds from the shed. The shit. I saw a ghost. And now we look at a synopsis of The Stone Tape. We haven't done this for a while, but let's just warn people that we are going to spoil the hell out of this. The, you know, we will give away every plot detail of it, and particularly seeing as we're putting a link in the show notes. If you haven't seen it, go off and watch it before you hear us tell you everything that's going to happen. Really, you won't regret it. This, this, this programme is amazing. The film begins... With Jill Greeley. Now, she's easy to make out because she's female. About the only one in the whole production. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, certainly the only living one. I think there's three in total. There is a member oh, yeah. of staff as well and yes. one in the pub. Oh, yeah. But yeah, anyway, yeah. we'll come to that. So Jill Greeley is driving into the courtyard of Tarskalands, a, a Victorian country house in England. We soon find that this old house is being redeveloped as a site office for a company called Ryan Electronics. Now, Jill in her car is behaving somewhat oddly and, and has a what can only be described as a strange turn, exacerbated when her car almost gets crushed between two reversing lorries, which is kind of weird. There's these two lorries reversing towards each other and she's just kind of there and panics and pulls her car into a mound of sand. So admitted, the first time I watched that, I just thought, Christ, woman, you've got really bad eyesight. And if you couldn't avoid those two lorries in that bigger space, then you really shouldn't have a driving license. <laughs> but 
there seems to be more going on because we hear these sort of strange electronic sounds played over the scene. And this is something that we'll, we'll come back to over and over again in this. This production was scored by the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and they, they use a lot of sort of weird electronic effects and synthesizer effects in this. And very, very neatly in this scene underscores the fact that there is something influencing her behaviour beyond just these two lorries. A new research team is meeting inside the old house. Their manager, Peter Brock, tells them that their job is to develop a new storage medium. The company has lost ground to Japanese competitors and he sees this as a chance to recover. This is one of the bits, I think, that dates the film, where it's, yep, magnetic tape, the whole spiel about that, that it's had its day, it's brittle, fragile, loses its memory, you think, yep, no shit, when we've been on about three or four different main mediums since then. (laughs) And the other thing that dates the film is the team's reaction to the mention of the Japanese, and they immediately launch into doing some very racist impressions, which, yeah, it's the early 70s, it would have been weird if they hadn't done that on British TV. As a first-time viewer, I'm watching this with, uh, you know, modern eyes, as, as I like to think of myself. Uh, and it's You're like wrong. One, it's one woman <laughs> and a load of blokes. And all the blokes seem to be doing, you know, doing blokey things, being there with their technology and talking about data storage and everything. And there's this poor hysterical woman who seems unable to drive a car very well and is, is all rather confused by all this but then it becomes apparent that jill greeley is in fact a computer programmer yes i know in 1972 hired to sift through the data generated by the research team shaking i was nearly in an accident oh where outside here i had a sort of momentary Blackout is the usual word. Wasn't that? You should have been with me. I should have been driving you. I'm sorry I couldn't make last night. So now you'll get accident prone. Hmm? Nothing happened. Now her boss and lover, Brock, has arranged for her to have the use of a state-of-the-art computer system but is told by site manager Roy Collinson that the renovation of the room that will house the computer storage has been stalled. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I love the fact that she has pretty much a whole room put aside for her computer as well. That is state of the art. <laughs> well, I, if you're old enough to remember the early 70s, which you're not, Matt... I remember the first time I saw a computer room, and this was actually in the mid to late 70s, It was one that was being used by a bank in Hong Kong. And I remember looking at the hard drives there, and the hard drives basically looked, appropriately enough for this, like washing machines. Uh, We'll get back to why that's appropriate in a moment. (laughs) But they were these these boxy square units that were about, you know, some of them the size of washing machines, some of them like fridge freezers. And there were banks and banks of them. And each one of these, you know, back in those days, held megabytes of data. Oh, staggering heights of data storage there. Now, as I said, the work in this room has been stalled. Well, the reason for the delay is that the builders have refused to work on the room, saying that it is haunted. Angered, Brock decides to inspect it for himself, accompanied by the team. This infamous, as we will come to see it, room is largely empty, apart from a table holding tins of wartime spam and what Brock refers to as 
a letter to Santa, which turns out to be further evidence of the haunting. We learn that this is the oldest part of the house, standing long before the Victorian structure, and possibly, as Roy says, that the foundations may date back to Saxon times. And the state of the room is is pretty dreadful. Iron Aids is filthy, and one wall is covered with rotting timbers. And Brock goes round and, and fairly savagely just starts kicking these off the wall. And as he does so, he reveals this staircase set into the wall, made of, of stone blocks, that goes up to a second floor that isn't there anymore because the floorboards have rotted away. Yeah, those boards do smash pretty much in the uh, typical tradition of, hey, look at a BBC wobbling set, uh, wall set. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like they're made of painted balsa wood or something. Yeah, I know, crazy. There's dry rot. They think it's catching. Look at these panels. Got to shift the lot in half an hour. Now, while exploring, the team members hear some strange sounds. Running steps, followed by a woman's scream. Only Greeley sees the woman, dressed as a maid, running up the stairs. The maid appears to fall to her death. Although, as a number of the team point out, the top of the stairs is not far enough above the ground to suggest the fatal fall. I don't know, she would have landed on stone, and that's those big stone slabs on the floor. You hit it at the right angle, and Yeah, it's incredible enough to me. You can just Mm. fall over, bang your head, and die. Well, I mean, we we saw that in the opening scene of Night of the Living Dead, so it's possible. That was a documentary, Matt. Indeed. They're coming to get you, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) It becomes increasingly obvious that the relationship between Brock and Greeley is not just professional. Paul hinted earlier about the fact that they uh, may well be lovers. They are clearly having an affair, which is made easier by the on-site accommodation that Brock uses when working late. In a number of scenes, we see him talking to his wife on the telephone while an uncomfortable Greeley lurks in the background. Yeah, he is a bit of a sleazeball, really, isn't he? Oh, yeah. 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 He comes across as being fairly charismatic, or at least forceful, the kind of person you'd want leading a team. But, oh, dear God, is he an arsehole. Yeah, so some, some of the um, the opening scenes when he says, oh, you're all right, Jill. And he's like, oh, you're only doing this because I couldn't be with you last night. No, 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 no. I'm rubbing it in my face about the wife and kids. No, 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 no. He's a really moaning, yeah, really emotionally blackmailing arsehole. Hmm. Yes. Yes, he is. The lack of this computer storage being available and the delays to the refurbishment of that room mean that the team are pretty much cooling their heels. They need this information that this computer wonderkind Greeley is going to produce for them. Um, And without it, they're lost. So... Brock has them basically trying to investigate the haunting in a scientific way, partly, I think, as a way of filling in the time and partly just to see whether there's any way of getting around the whole thing. Of course, being techies and having all this cool equipment, they use it and drag it into uh, the haunted room to try to analyse and perhaps even record the ghost. What's this about, Peter? Well, you did say ghost. Oh, silly word. Don't be put off by it. Call it a phenomenon, if you like. Anyway, it's real. He's got possession of the computer storage room, and it stopped all work there. <laughs> oh, the men won't go back. Meanwhile, the, the site manager, Collinson, uncovers some old records telling of the death of a maid in the room back in 1890. 
The records also indicate that there was an exorcism performed in an attempt to stop the haunting. We can also link in that letter from Santa in there as well, mm. because the, the letter says, all I want for Christmas is please go away. Almost as if the, uh, the mm. boy is one of the Tasker family. is just begging the ghost to go away. And they make an offhand comment explaining the um, cans of spam, saying if they'd been left in there for too long, then rats would have opened them up and eaten the contents years ago. But these have been sat here since the Second World War. Maybe they were leaving it as an offering to feed the ghost in an attempt to make it go away. And also, maybe the rats were scared away by whatever was going on in that room. Mm-hmm. So even rats can see ghosts. Following up on this idea of the exorcism, Greeley and Brock go to visit a, a local vicar, and while he seems well-versed in the history of Tuscalands, if he is something of a discursive and rambling character... God, that's an understatement. <laughs> he cannot find any useful records immediately uh, during their, their brief visit. Even though we have that lingering shot of uh, on the table, zooming in on a book about two folders down <laughs> yeah. from when, when they yeah. finally leave the room. Think... You imbecile! It's right there! <laughs> Around this time as well, they also go off and visit a local pub and hear a few stories of weird things that have gone on there. And apparently Tuscalands was occupied by the Air Force during the Second World War and there were some American airmen staying there. And they talk about how one of the black airmen had mentioned something about uh, guppies being in the walls there. <laughs> The woman corrects herself and, oh, it was something that sounded like guppies. And, yeah, I did do some reading around to try to work out what this referred to. There is, it originally comes out of uh, folklore in some parts of Africa, but ended up becoming part of Caribbean folklore, particularly from Jamaica. The idea of evil or ghostly spirits called duppies. Oh, uh, I was wondering what they meant. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's what it refers to. Bob Marley's song, I'm the Duppy Conqueror. Ah. There's also... The second female character that we find Another here. woman! I know, that's madness! <laughs> <laughs> They're taking over this film. They're taking over. Yeah. Of course, hand-in-hand, hand, one of the lines that she uh, delivers that, again, very much dates the film. It's less than two pounds for two <laughs> meals and two beers. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that, that was the most horrifying thing in the whole film, wasn't it? <laughs> that was the bit that was hardest to believe. Yeah. <sighs> A pound eighty. Oh, boy kill for prices like that now only just made decimal currency <laughs> I was just about to say the same <laughs> <Yeah>. thing <laughs> uh. so the team's experiments in the haunted room showed some strange results none of the attempts to record the sound of the ghost succeed only greedy can actually see the maid and one of her colleagues is totally unable to even hear the scream all of this leads brock to a strange hypothesis there's one or two instances where they see the maid appear in different places as well. Because eventually it's not just Jill that sees it. There's, as they get more exposed to it, one person says, She's over there! No, hang on, she's up the top of the stairs! No, she's by the door! And you think, what the hell? After all this, Brock suggests that the stone in the room has somehow recorded the maid's death, playing it back over and over for the following 80 years. This means that the team have succeeded in finding a new recording medium after all. I, I love that scene where he's, uh, where he's talking, saying, for God's sake, hasn't the penny dropped? <laughs> <laughs> it's a recording! It's like, hey, it's almost as if it fits in with the plot of why they're there. Peter, it's the room. What? 
Just the room itself, nothing else. Well, do you mind telling me? There how... is no ghost. Oh, but on. I heard it. All right, try this for size. The room holds an image. And when people go in there, they pick it up. What you hear or what you see is inside your own brain. And building on this, Greeley suggests that there's a reason why the ghost can't be recorded on tape and why only some people are seeing it and why only some people are hearing it, which is that instead of it creating light and sound, that this recording is somehow being played back directly in the brains of the observers. Yeah, I must say, I thought it was a very nice touch how they recorded the sound, but then the sounds of their voices were on the recording, but not that of the ghost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was creepy. That kind of gave empirical evidence that this is something other. It's not a fake scream because it would appear on the recording. So uh, it was easy to buy into the fact that all those people of science would then actually give this credence. And one, one of the, again, one of the other lines I really like in how it ties into wider ghost stories and reports is that when Brock, who pulls the brick out of the wall, puts it down on the table and it's Collinson that says, oh, it's Kentish Rag. It's a stone that's been used all across England since Roman times. And of course, then Brock's almost off the cuff. Well, that would explain loads of hauntings in old buildings if they're made from the same stone. Kentish Rag. What? It's called Kentish Rag, ragstone. It's a kind of green sand. Is it rare? Good grief, no. It's been quarried ever since Roman times. Used all over the south of England. Most of medieval London is built of this stuff. Better and better. Oh, could explain a lot of ghost stories. Yeah, I mean, Nigel Neal didn't actually come up with the idea that you might get psychic impressions recorded on the surroundings of a place. But he certainly popularised it with this, uh, with this film, to the extent where, in paranormal research, this theory is now known as the stone tape theory. The idea that buildings might absorb the psychic residue of events and play them back over time. Driven by the possibilities that these revelations present, Brock tasks his team with unravelling how this stone tape works. He drives them hard, trying to find a way to play back its recording on demand. He also sells the idea to Ryan, the owner of the company, promising him a revolution in recording media. Yeah, I do, I do like the line that he says, you won't walk on your own timetable, or worse that effect, you'll walk for me, when he's uh, sort of demanding of the ghost to appear. Yes, I mean, this is a textbook example of hubris. As we'll see, it has consequences. Oh, it has loads <laughs> of consequences. None of them good. <laughs> While Brock bombards the stones with light, sound and electromagnetic waves, Greeley notices strange messages appearing on her computer printouts, mentioning words like save and soul. She becomes convinced that the maid is somehow still aware, trapped forever, repeating the worst moment of her existence over and over again. And that really is quite a nightmarish thing. That, I, I think more than anything else in this film, is the idea that disturbed me the most. The idea that your consciousness could end up being almost trapped at the moment of death by your surroundings, mm -hmm. and then just you know, sort of turned into this perpetual hell. The team begin to crack under the stress of long hours and the sensory assault of Brock's tests. Eventually, something changes, and Greeley announces that the maid is gone. I'll tell you what he's done! Do you, do you know what he's done? He's wiped the tape! Brock 
seems to have erased her recording. Something else rumbles in the background, however. Along with some very hammy overacting in this point. Yeah, it's probably a good time to address this. The acting in this is... It's kind of what you'd expect from a 1970s BBC television play, in that it's very kind of stagey and theatrical in a lot of ways. Some of the acting is, is relatively naturalistic, but it's, it's generally a bit on the over-the-top side. There, there are moments where it just descends into absolute hamminess. And this scene, I mean, there's one of the supporting actors who, when everything's going wrong and, and Greeley is talking about, you know, the, these weird words turning up in, in her printouts, he just puts his hands up to his head and starts screaming, It's in the computer! And, oh dear God. <laughs> it does seem to descend into what we see in role-playing quite a lot, which is the power of shouting (laughs) (laughs) i have nothing to say on the subject no scott you would never lower yourself to that with the team dispirited and angry at this setback brock tries to make excuses to ryan putting off a visit you only hear about ryan in a lyrical irish accent to be sure to be sure yes as people sort of mock him and impersonate him you say say people it's really just brock is it Yeah. yeah yeah he Shows nothing but deference, uh, you know, almost obsequious deference, and and the you know the occasional lie when he's talking to Ryan on the phone. But when he's talking to anyone else about him, it's it is in these mocking terms. Mm. You know, further underline the fact that Brock is perhaps not the finest example of human beings. Mm-hmm. About the only thing that's really good about him is his fashion sense. I love the big wide lapels he has on some of his suits. <laughs> Much to Brock's disgust, Ryan sends a rival research team to Taskland who are developing a new electronic washing machine with the staggering ticket price of £900, even at that time. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, that would be like 10 grand these days. I not only wash, I wanted to dance, I wanted to do my dinner, I wanted to do everything for that price. <laughs> and I, I love the, the actor that they've got to play the uh, the leader of the rival team because uh, he just comes across as being the perfect foil for Brock in that he's possessed of the same kind of self-confidence, he's the same kind of you know, sort of fast-talking showman type almost. Alien eyebrows that can kill a man at 50 paces. <laughs> yeah, oh, his, his look is perfect. I mean, he looks like a yeti in a suit. And his Hands, the multicoloured hands. <laughs> oh God! Yes, yeah. His, his team are sort of experimenting with dye fastness and colours and so on. And so every time you see him, he's been messing around with it, and his hands are a different colour. You said um, an exorcism. Yes. Well, he knows about it. Oh, we had the documents. 1892. We well, no, no. It was 1760. 1760. The house wasn't built then. Indeed not. There was just some sort of ruin here. Nevertheless, there had been uh, complaints, so uh, a service was performed. Quite useless, apparently. That's if you accept there'd been anything there in the first place. The setback also seems to sour the relationship between Brock and Greeley. She still believes that there is something more to learn from the haunted room, but Brock becomes increasingly dismissive and curt. Yeah, pretty much it does turn to the point where then she is the only person that thinks there's something still going on in there, particularly after she proclaims the maid's gone. But when she goes back in there as they're starting to size up the room to put the storage medium back in there, she has another similar attack as to what she had when she first went in the room. The first instance she clawed away outside and you see this lingering shot of her hand pulling herself along the wall. This time she almost falls down in almost something like an epileptic fit that she's twitching on the floor. I guess it's worth pointing out that with that opening scene and here as well, you've got 
sort of inhuman electronic rumbling sound. So where we see manifestations of the maid before, and these are very human manifestations. We hear running footsteps, we see her form, we hear her scream. But these other manifestations, there's nothing human about them at all. We get into Doctor Who soundtrack territory. Mm. The vicar, remember him, that Greeley and Brock consulted, now turns up on site, unannounced at Tarskalands with some new information. He tells the team that there was an exorcism on site, much earlier than the one Collinson had learned of. This happened in 1760, decades before Tarskalands was even built. Indeed, this does echo a little bit of what Jill's been saying as she's been doing her researching in the tape onto the stone tape itself, thinking that there may be layers of recording and, and she believes something had happened a lot earlier than 1890. So, yeah, this is a bit earlier, but maybe not quite as far as she has to go. Yes, in fact, I mean, when she's doing her analysis, I mean, she's been told to stop doing this by Brock. I mean, the rest of the team aren't supporting her. She's been treated like a lunatic. But she is obsessed. She is still carrying on doing her analysis with her computer and, and visiting the, the haunted room. And with the data that she's gathered, she believes that there are earlier recordings underneath the maid's death that has been shoved or wiped out of the way. And that these earlier recordings may date back thousands of years. She tries to convince Brock of this, but he just dismisses her out of hand in, in a scene which takes place in his office. The office backs onto these, um, uh, th th this bedroom that he's been using as overnight accommodation when he's been working late. And you know, in the bedroom, we can see his new secretary there. And so it's you know, clearly obvious that at this stage, as well as the professional relationship being soured, Whatever affair had been going on with Greeley, that's gone now as well. And the third female character. Well, fourth, including was, the ghost. I was just about to say yeah. the ghost. I was going to say the third living character. Despite the attempts of Brock, Collinson and other team members to stop her, Jill Greeley now continues with her researches, growing ever more desperate and fragile. She heads back into the room alone. This time... Greeley's senses are assaulted by sounds and visions that seem utterly inhuman. She is overwhelmed and maddened and tries to flee. In the corridor outside, however, she sees lights like glowing red eyes staring out of the darkness. This would be where, if it was a Dead of Night game, she should have got a survival point for that. <laughs> Heading back there alone and then facing some really dodgy visual effects. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I watched this again last week, and it was something like the third or the fourth time I've seen the stone tape. This time round, I wasn't as taken aback at how dated the visual effects look as I was previous times. They are very 1970s. There's you know, no digital effects or anything like that. It's all lights and double exposures. And I think they actually work surprisingly well. They do present a real feeling of otherworldliness. It does look a bit cheap and very 1970s BBC. But I think it conveys the idea that she is encountering something alien quite well. It's also one of those scenes that uh, when I've viewed it back, I've found a little bit more on the screen over subsequent viewings. That as she runs back in the room and pretty much you see history repeating itself that she's going the same way as the poor maid. She goes to the stairs. As you see her going up the stairs, they look perfectly as you've seen them before. You then have almost a shot mm. from her perspective looking up and you see the archway to the second floor, the mm. floor that is now no longer there. She goes up beyond that archway 
and it's almost like she's climbing up the side of a stone, like something like Stonehenge. It's not worked in any way, shape, or form. It, she's crawling up a rock face. Yeah. And are they figures behind her? Are they multiple figures? Because they're referred to at various points as the others. Hmm. Um, as she references them, saying that there is something else in that room, these others. Are they merged as one single entity? Are there three or four separate bodies or heads that you can see? There's no clear distinct features, but she has said at this point in the talk to Collinson that there may be some degree of decay in the recording itself, and that Brock's efforts have probably helped to um, remaster the effect that's down there that had previously been buried by the, the upper-level recording of the maid. But as you mentioned, you know, this drives her to tragedy. She runs up the stairs, sees this horrible thing up at the top, and then, yes, she repeats the fate of the maid. We hear the same despairing scream, and she falls to her death. In the next scene, sometime later, we see Brock, Collinson, and the other members of the team returning from an inquest into Jill Greeley's death. Brock had managed to convince the court that Greeley was unstable and her death was merely an accident. On Brock's orders, his staff start destroying all of Greedy's work, shredding reams of computer printouts, and the haunted room is to be left empty, now designated as a site of historical interest. Yeah, they say that the conservationists have been round and they've locked up the room. Collinson also gets pretty agitated at Brock at this point, and there is a blatant, hey, I'm going to take a swing at a camera and then make it look like I punched you, in a really <laughs> horribly uh, choreographed fight scene and making one line that they used as the heading in the chapter titles on the DVD, saying, 7,000 years, it said, saying about how far she'd had to go back to find evidence of something on the tape. And then we move on to the final scene. Brock pays one last visit to the haunted room. He heads there alone, and in the gloom, he is presented with the new recording that has been imprinted on the stone tape, the screaming and terrified form of Greeley running up the stairs to her death, in her last moments, calling out Brock's name, asking for his help. And, of course, there you have one last bit of overacting, a very close-up scream. Now let's discuss a few observations about the stone tape. The location used for task alliance in this was in fact a country house known as Horsley Towers. And one of the things that really appealed to me about this was the fact that it was the home of Ada Lovelace. Now if that name doesn't mean anything to you, she worked along with Charles Babbage. So Charles Babbage built the first ever computer. But Ada Lovelace, who was also the daughter of Lord Byron wrote the original programs for it. She was the world's first computer programmer. Hmm. It's just a nice bit of almost accidental symmetry. There, there was no plan to film this on location there because of the connection with Ada Lovelace. But you've got the fact that the central character in this is a female computer programmer at a location where the first computer programmer in the world was a woman. It was from Kingswood Warren, ironically the BBC R&D division. 
Yeah, apparently Nigel Neal paid a visit out to Kingswood Warren and was quite impressed with uh, the BBC R&D facility there. And it was the same kind of thing. It was an old stately home, or at least old country manor, that had been converted and was being used by the BBC, had these different research departments in there. In fact, he even based a lot of the personality types and the characters on people that he'd actually met there because they struck him as being the right kind of boffins for the the story that he was telling. And he talks about the fact that they were all young and good-humoured and enthusiastic, and he, uh, he really wanted to try to capture this, and I think he did. To a degree, this reminds me of a Radio 4 play that I heard some years ago, which took the premise of sound being recorded in a medium, but in a slightly different way, and one that was quite close to my heart, was that sound could be recorded in pottery. So as the potter's wheel was going round, the vibrations of sound were recorded much like, you know, in a vinyl record. <laughs> and this was taken to the um, extent that Jesus's voice could be just picked up <sighs> preaching the Sermon on the Mount or some such in this piece of pottery because they developed this piece of technology to read the, the sound waves in the clay. I which remember is a, this. You know, it's, yeah. it's a little... I kind of like this stone tape idea. Isn't that based on a short story? I've no idea. I it think could so. Be, could yeah, be. I'm pretty sure I've read a story with that I, premise. I'm just thinking that's pretty much exactly how a wax cylinder would have worked, just the vibrations mm. of the needle recording on the on the cylinder. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, for yeah, if it is based on a story, um, I mean, this is all coming back to me, if that was actually used as the you know, sort of rationale behind it. Mm. And also, talking of Radio 4 plays, this recording when i looked it up on youtube there's also a 2015 adaptation of the stone tape mm. as a one-hour play uh starring julian barrett of uh, the mighty boosh yeah i really enjoyed that i listened to that last night i would probably say i enjoyed it more than the the tv adaptation oh right i don't okay. know this existed it it retells the basic story essentially the same but there's some changes i think it's set in 1979 you might not like this, Matt. There are more female characters. What? I know, madness, right? But, well, but I, I believe in sticking to the source, the, yeah. <laughs> sticking to an original story, but improving it is not a problem. <laughs> but um, but no, it, it does a good job of playing around with the sounds, but when they're divorced from the visuals, I think it works really well, because I find weird sounds particularly spooky. So it was late last night and i thought i'll just listen to this so i lay in bed and put it on on the headphones in the dark and there are times when you know scenes are taking place and without the visual cues obviously you've got to picture it in your mind's eye and it's sometimes a little confusing as to where they are again and quite what's going on but then they work with the tape and they're sort of rewinding it to listen to it again and they use all sorts of effects and so on on the on the sound it's quite haunting and the the payoff at the end is a little different but but very good okay oh, yeah. say, it'd be interesting because mostly the um obviously the scene with jill at the end is very visual so being able to see how they turn that into an audio uh presentation would be pretty good no it's pretty cool i would really recommend just laying in bed and listening to it in the dark well not for you max you'll fall asleep <laughs> but it gets very subtle so you need to be able to hear it well hmm. tape number eight recorded at 0441 hours on november 1979 Two degrees centigrade. Nagra, four...
it was a 2015 recording it's you know i found it there on youtube well again we can link to that from the show notes yeah so yeah Another thing I found interesting about this, we talked a little bit about how this was very 1970s or early 70s in its social attitudes. But I found it really interesting the way the character of Greeley was treated. Yeah, she is quite fragile in it and, yeah, perhaps unnecessarily so. But at the same time, there, there did seem to be some awareness of the role that the sexism of everyone around her was playing in her decline. The fact that because she was a woman, it was so much easier for all of her male colleagues to discount what she was saying and, oh, she's just being hysterical and shut her down. It was that sort of powerlessness that drove her to destruction at the end. It's almost odd that because Collinson points out somewhat early that he's always watched her from afar and that she seems to be the one that would hurt easy. And then, given he even kind of dismisses her at the end, you think, aren't you listening to your own advice? Damn it! What the hell? Mm. And I feel I kind of took your role in this, Matt. I did fall asleep. <laughs> really? How? <laughs> oh, boy. Really? God damn. I mean, I think it has to be said, and you two are probably going to disagree, but if you're going to watch this, I think you have to have a pretty high tolerance for early 70s, somewhat ropey, filmmaking compared to today's oh this this was yeah. at the heights of doctor who level uh, quality <laughs> yeah say. 1972 cheap sets acting's yeah. not that great it's very uh, it's as we, we talked about okay. with the sort of sexual politics and so on it's the height of the john pertwee era doctor who's coming up to 10 years old they've revolutionized what bbc <laughs> drama was like <laughs> i'd say days. you two would disagree but <laughs> no, uh, I, just no. to prepare viewers for that it, it's a good story under it but the, the presentation is very dated. They once had a guardian with bell, book and candle. Well, we're rather better equipped. I'm going to chuck the lot at it. Do you mean go after it with electronics and then... Find out exactly what makes it... Well, it doesn't tick. It patters its feet and screeches. Yeah. Everything we get, Jill's going to program in the computer. Analyse a spook, well, eh? Let's say it's a mass of data waiting for a correct interpretation. No one's ever managed it before. And now we look at what we can take as gaming inspiration from the Stone Tape. I think this is, for a ghost story, a very Lovecraftian ghost story. We have that mixture of, of science and superstition, which, I mean, we see in things like the Shunt House, which we talked about recently. But more than that, I mean, this whole idea of the others and whatever it is that destroys Greeley at the end, that, that weird little bit with her coming to the top of the staircase and almost going into another dimension. This is something very alien. This is something Lovecraftian. There's also hints, again, of typical tropes that people that have been in there have gone mad. Uh, one of the bits I don't think we touched on was that after they have a word with one of the servers at the inn, that he said that he and some of his friends as kids used to go into oh, yeah. the house and they used to dare each other to find bits of broken glass they hadn't smashed or spend time in the room and see what happens. Well, one of their friends got stuck in the room and ever since then all he does is smile and laugh as he's been committed to the local asylum. But again, there is that's definitely reeks of a Lovecraftian protagonist that's gone in there and then lost it. I wonder how this would play as a scenario. Let's say the team are our player characters. They go in there, 
Actually, yeah, much like player characters, they do very quickly buy into the fact that this is real supernatural, which, mm. as a viewer, kind of surprised me because I was expecting the usual, oh, one or two people buy into it and the rest are very dismissive. Well, I, but, I think I think the thing that sells that in this, which is probably quite important for you know, a Call of Cthulhu game, is the fact that they all see the evidence of their own senses pretty quickly. I mm. mean, if they've been getting second-hand accounts and, you know, Greeley had gone back and sort of said, oh, I've seen a ghost, and no one else had, it would have been a completely different story. But you had this whole group of scientifically-minded characters who go into the room and all but one of them experience something. Yeah, I think so. And that's, you know, I can very much imagine that with a Call of Cthulhu and investigator group. So they go in there, let's say this is your game, they go in there and they experience that. Well, they are motivated to do pretty much what the group was. And something we didn't really get into were the apparatus the group used. I mean, that mm. guy with the big, I don't know what the hell it was, sound cannon or whatever. That megaphone! Blasted out. Yeah, kind of like a, an industrial-sized megaphone about five or six foot long that he kind of zoomed around everywhere like a bazooka. It was yeah, that's quite strange. So I can imagine the player characters already getting into this and, you know, mm. probably having a crook's tube under their arm. Um, <laughs> but then what do they do, really? What would then happen in the game? What's interesting is the fact that you do have these characters who have scientific skills. So, I mean, we're thinking about Call of Cthulhu characters here. So this is a group of characters who have got, uh, you know, things like electrical repair and physics and, you know, science acoustics, maybe. They don't necessarily have any occult. They certainly don't have any Cthulhu mythos. And so they're going in, they're tackling this unknown phenomenon using the only tools and comprehension that they have, the only skills that they have. And as we discover, it is just such a fatal mismatch that it almost inevitably leads to tragedy. And I think that's a great setup for a Call of Cthulhu scenario. But as a game, they're almost driving themselves crazy by their strong drive to research the place and, and all the different sounds and stuff are annoying each other with them. All except for Greeley, they get to a point where, oh, we've kind of exhausted it and they, they all just seem to sort of put it out of mind after a while. Well, I think it was when they had this horrible realisation, though it turned out to be incorrect, that Brock and his efforts had actually broken whatever it yeah. was that they set out to do. As soon as Brock's embarrassment took over there and his desire to cover this up before he ended up looking like an idiot in front of Ryan, particularly with a rival team coming in, that just put the kibosh on the whole thing. So I think in a game, the whole that probably wouldn't have happened, would it? Probably the players would have carried on wanting to research the place and yes. they'd have all been like Greeley, I yeah. think. Yeah. And potentially also done a bit more work rather than leaving it to the NPC off screen, the priest to go and, or the reverend, to go and find all the church records and records of the exorcism and so forth. Well, the priest could well have been a PC as well, I suppose, if you sort of extend bit, the cast a bit. A bit removed from the action happening on but site. in a game, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. could have well had a, a bit of a more wide cast. Mm -hmm. So... I can imagine in the game, they're all kind of taken on the role of Greeley and they set up the apparatus somehow and they do break through the barrier and they realise there's another layer to the recording and that, that they're going to get into investigating that, I would think. Yeah. And yeah, maybe they do so. manage to get up the top of the stairs and actually get through to this other dimension. Mm. It's almost like a trip to the dreamlands or something mm -hmm. or a yes. time gate. Yeah. I particularly like also that, uh, with maybe one exception, the one thing that separates the appearance of the others from the other instances of the haunting with the maid, is that it's the only time when a, a visual manifestation leaves the room. Yes. Because she sees it yeah. out the side in the corridor. I mean, you've got that one instant where Brock goes up to the door and he can still hear her on the other side, he can hear the scream. 
So he's kind of experiencing it through um, from being outside the room. But Jill, by that point in the last, uh, the kind of penultimate scene, had left the room, gone down the corridor some way before she sees those two red lights, before they start moving around. What if that recording isn't just a recording, that beings, as we mentioned, a bit like the soul, it's a fragment that might be aware of its existence and might still have a degree of sentience? What if this thing, because it is so alien, has sentience and is able to get out? Well, it's not just that. I I think there's perhaps even the implication in this. I mean, certainly it's something we could do in in the game. What we've taken as being the recording, I think it's almost like, I I keep going back to the shunned house here, the idea that you have this entity that has been consuming the personalities of, of everyone that it's devoured. That, you know, under the right circumstances, you know, in the Shunt House, we see at least its provocation leading to these almost being replayed through a human medium. Mm. And it's almost something similar here. I and mean, we, we could take the stones or whatever lies beneath the stones as being some kind of alien entity that has done something similar, that has trapped all these parts of people within themselves or, and other alien forms. And under the right circumstances is, is regurgitating them psychically. A slight variant on that, that the people or their consciousness has been sapped into the rocks like a a sponge and in a hell-like way they're destined to relive their death over and over again. But but they are conscious. If they could be freed from that, their their consciousness is still there. So perhaps Jill Greeley's consciousness, uh, uh, her spirit, is now trapped within the rocks. She's still there. I mean, if the player characters... If they're going into this other dimension, maybe this other dimension is infused within the rocks. Well, if you wanted to do a really nihilistic scenario, you could have a setup where characters, maybe even from different time settings, sort of encounter each other in this strange place. They're not quite sure how they got there. All they know is something is horribly wrong. As they struggle to get out of it, they find themselves sort of pushed towards the circumstances of their death, just reliving it. And, you know, then it just starts over again. And there's just the realisation they're not ever getting out of this, that they're just having it replayed over and over Well, perhaps they can get some message out to somebody. But, of course... They then it becomes apparent to them that the message they're getting out is to another team of people in this room who are perceiving them just as our protagonist perceived the maid falling to her death. Another interesting aspect, I thought, from a gaming point of view about this setup was the motivations of the player characters. That the investigators initially hit what seems to be a roadblock, something that's getting between them and what they've been tasked to do, before they realise that this is actually the thing they've been looking for. That sort of sudden twist and moment of revelation, if you could pull off something like that in a a Call of Cthulhu scenario, it would be really quite powerful. Well, I think a good thing here was that there was a clear way to monetize this. If they could get this rock and use it as some kind of data storage which was their objective. I mean, man, that was was almost a sort of chance occurrence, but they were able to sort of see the potential in that. So it allowed them to totally buy into researching this thing, whereas otherwise they would have ignored it, right? So it'd be interesting if you could get that set up in the the scenario, wouldn't it, that um, there's this really dangerous thing. Why would the investigators get involved? Well, because they're going to make a lot of money out of it. Thinking on it, though, there is a little bit of a flaw in the reason why they would want to research this. It's a new medium, which is exactly the kind of thing they're looking for. 
but it's about three or four times the size of the computer room that they would need that they originally would have had. But it's, I mean, this is what a lot of scientific research does, right? I mean, it takes something and then it, it's a totally new thing. So it researches it because it might be that they can just take a little bit of the rock and store who knows how much data in mm-hmm. it because it's a totally new concept, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I, just, I think the, on, the concept wasn't that they could use the whole room storing a bit of stuff. I took it that potentially this could open up new branches of data storage. But even then, I mean, even if it turned out that you did need an entire room of it, you've just come up with an incredible alternative to the cinema experience. You go into this room and you have movies or whatever beamed directly into your brain. Mostly those movies are only about three or four seconds long at a time. There are a series of steps and a scream. When cinema started, the first films that were shown to the public Mm. weren't much more than that. Mm -hmm. The train train pulling into the station Station, and scaring the shit out of everyone. In the uh, radio adaptation, Julian Barrett says to one of his friends, you could store all of your Frank Zappa records on a little bit of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Because again, you know, we're looking at a period when there were no iPods or anything like that. Yeah. Um, no, no CDs or DVDs or anything. So data storage was, as we said, took whole rooms anyway. Yeah, yeah. Something Nigel Neal was very, very good at was presenting these science fiction concepts in a, a creepy supernatural way or supernatural seeming way. And th- this idea of you know stuff coming out of our distant past, I mean, we saw it in a number of his Quatermass stories, and we certainly see it here, this idea of manifestations of deep time. And that is a very Lovecraftian thing, and I think it's a very creepy mm. thing. Especially the, uh, the shots from Quatermass in the Pit when they start unearthing the, the missile and finding these skeletons of prehistoric man mixed in with the clay, you think, Christ, this thing is old. Mm. And I like the layers effect as well here. So with the stone tape, we've got this maid going up the steps, the scream, and dying. And that's all they have to start with. But then they realise that, oh, that's just the surface recording. There's something below it, something older. And, you know, that's kind of cool, because we've got this supernatural premise, but having the layers below it, I think, and then revealing the deeper time and and, and everything behind that, and who knows where it goes to. It's like that layers of the onion thing, right? Mm. It's it's slowly revealing more and more, um, which is a cool thing in a scenario. And the only thing that disappointed me in the stone tape on this front was the fact that yeah, it was pinned down to being 7,000 years old. And I would have thought it would have been more disturbing if the indication had been that whatever was there under the base of it was older than humanity, which I thought was sort of what they were building towards. Because, I mean, you, you know, 7,000 years ago, there were still Neolithic people running around. How did they get 7,000 anyway? You know, this was something that Greeley calculated from oh, yeah. a computer. So obviously it was right. Yeah, There is something in a Lovecraftian setting that is really literally awe-inspiring about you know th- this cosmic sense of being made to feel small by huge space huge time seeing our insignificance and the idea of these entities or these manifestations we're seeing coming from deep time the kind of time where our lifespans are just blinks of the eye i actually rather like that it was seven thousand years old i mean putting it in the realm of stonehenge and so on a bit a bit older but because the entities that we see we don't we don't really know what they are are they human i didn't really get the impression they were human so i quite Mm. like the fact that there are these things that were there that actually it's not in the cosmic scale of things it's not that long ago it was in britain and there were there were people here then but there was something else here then as well so it seems to sort of tread 
a bit closer to home with that, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, and I suppose with Hint of the Standing Stones and that other place at the top of the stairs as well, it does sort of maybe tie in with that whole sort of Neolithic stone monument thing that maybe this was somehow a manifestation of of our interactions with the others. Yeah. Now, one of the things I really like to do when I'm a keeper at a table is that I love to rub... In the a, in a nicest possible way. I love to rub <laughs> the investigator's noses in it as to saying, this is your fault! And I think that uh, last scene with Peter is pretty much the, the perfect sum-up of that. As a player at the table, if I was suddenly presented with the repercussions of my actions in that kind of respect, yeah, I, th- I think that's the kind of game that would really stay with me, that, that kind of emotional gut punch. That's a D8 sand hit, though. Oh, at least. (laughs) The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. And once again, it is that time of the show when we thank those lovely, lovely people who have given us money and made this whole thing possible. As we mentioned in the news segment, uh, use Patreon uh, to gather pledges. And a lot of you have recently joined up uh, to get the Blasphemous Tome issue three. And... As a result, we've had a lot of people to thank recently. We've had a lot of people particularly to thank through the medium of song. Uh Uh-oh. And we are sort of slowly releasing these uh, two at a time because any more is just plain inhumane. And probably illegal. Yes. But if you are waiting for your your songs, don't fret. Or perhaps do fret. They will be coming along soon. And as Scott mentioned at the top of the episode... You've got until the end of the year to get on Patreon and back us in order to receive a copy of The Blasphemous Tome, Issue 3. This is a paper fanzine that we issue. It's got a scenario from Mr. Dorwood, Polk Thulu scenario called A New Age of Wonders, which is uh, fantastic. It's got various articles. It's got a review of our trip to Necronomicon uh, and many other things. It's only available in paper format there's no pdfs or any of that modern nonsense this is a 80s throwback fanzine and uh, matt has done matt has done a lovely job of laying it out so it looks like a genuine 1980s artifact i should really trademark shittification as a process (laughs) 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 don't worry folks shittification is matt's term for making it look really good it doesn't involve finger painting I spend all my time trying to measure it out, making it fairly good on ratios. Nice, even columns, nice everything mathematically right, and then fuck it all up to make it look like it's been handmade. <laughs> it's a work of art. Now, yes, we have new backers, as Scott said, and the first one at the $1 level is Bjorn Mashmeyer. Yes, thank you very much, Bjorn. Yeah, and thank you, Bjorn. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Bjorn. And thank you to Daniel Bateman. Indeed. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. And also, thanks go out to Will Skolachenko. So, thank you very much, Will. Thank you, Will. Yes, thank you very much, Will. And a thanks to Chris Yorocker Ernst. Yes, thank you very much, Chris. Indeed, thanks, Chris. <laughs> and finally, thank you to Jean-Francois Bovin. Indeed, thank you, Jean-Francois. Yeah, thank you, Jean-Francois. 
And moving on up to our $3 level, we say thank you and cheers to Sam Dale. So thank you very much, Sam, and cheers. Cheers, Sam. Thank you and cheers, Sam. And as I hinted darkly at the start of this little segment, we do sing to certain backers. That's a lie. This is no nothing that can be called singing. <laughs> Those brave, brave people who back us at the $5 level get a special personalised thanks in the form of, well... A sonic experiment. I was going to say noise. That's pretty much as close as you're going to get. <laughs> and the first song thank you goes out to Stephen Wacker. Indeed. Thanks very much, Stephen. Yes, thank you, Stephen. And yes, thank you to good friend of the good friends, Tony Parry, who has made a special request that we do this in the style of a male voice choir. Sorry, a Welsh male voice choir. You don't know what you've asked for, Tony. You really don't. Yep, thank you and apologies for what's about to follow, Tony. Yep, thank you very much, Tony. I know Scott has said this is going to be male Welsh voice choir. I'm not. We're going to do something. I'm going to mix it. This may be nothing like that, but we'll see. We'll, we'll get one out of the three, you're right? About, Mail. You're, about, you're about to find out. Tony Parry, Tony Parry, Tony Parry, thanking you, thanking you. Tony Parry, thanking you. And now we take a look at what's happening on social media. There was a little discussion, which I, I saw, guess I sort of started, about our singing that came up on Google Plus recently. Why? Why did you do that? <laughs> and Forrester Gary uh, suggested Jackson Elias the musical. I can see it now. Your name's in lights. Police spotlights, that is. Our good friend Frank Delventhal over on G+. With reference to our episode about social interactions and social skills, sent us the following message. He says, A long time ago, I was playing a role-playing game in a train on the way back from boarding school to Hamburg. I told my GM that my character would punch the bad guy from a distance of one inch. I'm just kind of wondering what the situation that led up to this was, <laughs> but anyway. The GM told me there's not enough distance to take up enough power. I argue, no, just like this, and punched the window from that distance. Okay, well, obviously Frank <laughs> is, a, is a student of Bruce Lee here. The one-inch punch was one of his trademark things. So hang the, the fist one inch from the enemy, by the use of the full force of his body, he could develop a lot of power into the punch. Now, to good effect, Frank showed his GM what would happen. It made a boom and the window had major cracks and we decided to change train apartments. <laughs> Not without him mentioning, okay, the guy's knocked out for good. <laughs> we changed train apartments. 
Did this happen in the game or while you were playing the game? They Frank's must... life is hard to tell. With who he's <laughs> uh, are we just getting communication over G Plus from a role playing character here? <laughs> I, I do love the fact it does mirror one of our experiences with the uh, one of the gaslight sections of Horror on the Orient Express, where I think your command to my PC was, Hugh, defenestrate! <laughs> Just, <laughs> take out the NPC. But yes, I think out of everyone we know, Frank is the most likely to be an investigator. Yeah. We've mentioned this before. Take a look at Frank's videos on, on YouTube. The, the results are quite terrifying. <laughs> Thinking of the topic for this uh, this show, we should team Frank up with CJ. That would be one hell of a crime-fighting duo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, forget about flamethrower and, and crook's tube. Yeah, yes, it's, it's yeah, psychical research and one-inch punch. <laughs> <laughs> and together they go mad. And finally, what do we make of the stone tape? Yes, has it aged well? Has the recording degraded or is it still there preserved in the stone as fresh as it ever was? Can we find new layers beneath the surface? We can find a two-disc DVD edition of it compared to my one disc, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'm sore about that at all still, but... Personally, I think that it has aged a lot better than I remembered it. As I said, I've seen it a few times over the years. And this time round, I I guess because I'd set my expectations that it had aged very badly, I was quite pleased at at how little the creakiness seemed to matter to the overall effect. One thing we've discussed amongst ourselves is the idea of doing an episode potentially on Nigel Neal, because his body of work, I think, you know, for Lovecraft fans, is fairly essential. I mean, quite a mass, you know, things like the stone tape, beasts, and any number of other things that he wrote. Season of the Witch, yep. even though he took his name off it. And I think there's plenty of inspiration for Call of Cthulhu in there, and I think his work overall is just fascinating. If you think this would be something you'd like to hear, please let us know on social media. You can find our main website on blasphemoustomes.com, and there's links there to our Facebook, Google+, and Twitter presences. I still want to find a jacket that has the width of Brock's lapels, because they go all pretty much all the way across to his shoulders. Well, that's 70s fashion, Matt. I know, it's great. Yeah. And considering that that was the kind of era of Doctor Who that I used to watch on VHS when I was growing up, this is a bit of a nostalgic trip for me, but I don't think it's aged particularly badly do, at all. Do you suppose this is how hang gliders were invented? That you know, someone wearing a lapels like that just fell down a flight of stairs and ended up gliding? <laughs> what the hell do they call them, those uh, wing, wingman wing suits? suits? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I'd say, I'd have to say I wasn't riveted by it. It was pretty good, but I think that the concepts behind it and the ideas and talking about it probably hold up perhaps better than the execution of the original film. And I would very much you know, advocate seeking out that radio play. I thought that was really well done. And it kind of reinvents some of that work from the original. With added Frank Zappa horror. Yeah, on a bit of rock. <laughs> rock music. Oh, boom. <laughs> <laughs> I think we better leave it there then. <laughs> so it only remains to wish all our listeners a happy new year. And until the next episode, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Mm-hmm.
blasphemoustomes.com. What if we could fit all your Zappa records in one stone? That would be a deep stick.